0: let go ahead, please, and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've got it, Contextualization Matters. Last week, we started a um, new series on In the World to Win the World, and we looked at just the importance of us as a local church truly being in the world to win the world. That's the example of Paul, the example of Jesus, and it's the call that's on our life as Christians and as a local church um, to actually go out into the world, to win the world. We look then at the temptation we can face to stay in the ghetto, and I appreciate the feedback this week of so many of you saying, you know what, that is my temptation. I know a lot of believers, and I'm used to Christian life, but going beyond the ghetto is different, and I understand that, because that can be my story too, the temptation to just Stay as a family. We like being as a family and we like life group. And by the time we've done a life group and gone to musicians rehearsal and gone on a Sunday, we're tired. So that's all we're going to do. That's a temptation. But it's a temptation, as we saw last week, that we must overcome and we must go out there. First and foremostly, because of the plight of those beyond the ghetto, there are hundreds of thousands of people in Sydney that are running headlong for an eternity without Jesus Christ an eternity in conscious, righteous punishment. I don't want that. And we can't just ignore it. We can't just come in and sing a few songs on a Sunday and close the doors and pretend that they don't exist. They need the gospel. They need Jesus. And that's a message that we have. And so we looked at that. And we looked also at the example of the Savior. The ultimate incarnation, one who literally came from heaven and earth, took on flesh the ultimate act of contextualization. Have you ever thought about that? He wasn't a human being before, but he took on flesh, and now he will always have flesh for all eternity. He will always have scars on his hands for all eternity as an ultimate act of incarnation, an ultimate act of being in the world, to win the world. And we look then at what it is to have that same call on our life. For as Jesus left, he said, Listen, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. Well, this week I want us to look then at the importance and necessity of contextualization because it isn't just that we take the gospel and we go running into the world and we, we do with it as we will. There's more to it than that. The Bible gives us how-tos. The Bible gives us examples and clarity and understanding as how we are to go. How are we to go and make disciples of all nations? And that's where we are in this text, 1 Corinthians 9. And so let's read from Verse 19 to the end of 23 for though i am free from all i have made myself a servant to all that i might win more of them to the jews i became as a jew in order to win jews to those under the law i became as one under the law though not being myself under the law that i might win those under the law to those outside the law i became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the clarity... That scripture brings us. Lord, you don't just send us and you don't just embolden us, but you give us example and illustration as to how we are to go. Lord, how incredible that you came to us. You went to us. You came into our world to seek and save the lost. That's us. Oh Lord, as we sing and cry out in worship, what a Savior! We can only sing that because you incarnated yourself and you pursued us even to death on the cross. Lord, would you help us then, as we saw last week, to have an increased compassion for those beyond the ghetto. Help us to feel how you feel towards them. Help us to see how you see them. And Lord, would you give us grace then to go. So today, Lord, would you open this scripture before our eyes. Holy Spirit, would you influence our hearts and our brains, and would we feel ever increasingly equipped to go in Jesus' name. Amen. In preparation for this week, a certain group of people came to mind on numerous occasions, and that is the Salvation Army. Now, you may be wondering, what earth did the Salvation Army come to mind at numerous times during my week? But they did, and I think they did because they're a great illustration, I think, of the importance and necessity of contextualization. see, if you look look on Wikipedia, which is nearly always true, Wikipedia says the Salvation Army is a Protestant Christian church known for its extensive philanthropy and charity work. Philanthropy being the the act of going out and, and seeking to get money for donations so that it could be sent across the world, and charity work. And I think that's a really good sum up of who they are. They are known around the world for their charity work and philanthropy. Everybody's heard of the Salvation Army. They're always dressed up in their, in their army gear and they're, they're asking for money or they've got their brass band or whatever it will. And they're known for that. And they do incredible work around the world. When you see the amount of money that they collect and how they disseminate that across the world, it really is overwhelming. And praise God for them. And yet they're barely ever known as a church. In fact, I was chatting to a few people this week and said, Did you realize Salvation Army is a church? And they didn't even know it was a church. They just thought it was like some charity that was just to do with giving out money. But actually, they're a church. You see, less known underneath of all they do, they are a church. They were founded in 1865 in the UK by a man called William Booth and his wife, Catherine. They were set up in a quasi military structure, so they introduced the fact that they wouldn't really have pastors, they would have officers. And they wouldn't really have bishops, they'd have like commanders. However they structured it, they decided that they were going to build this thing around an army-type structure in the late 1800s and early 1900s. That's where the uniform came from. And for many years, they thrived as a movement. They went to over 15,000 congregations in over 100 countries of the world in a very short space of time. And the culture at the time, it really appealed to them. You can imagine the early 1900s with the world wars, and then you've got a Christian organization stressing in the same type of gear, in army gear and officer gear. They thrived. They also used the brass band structure, which growing up in the United Kingdom, you realize that 100 years ago, that was a good deal. People loved going into the communities and hearing the Salvation Army brass band. They would play trumpets and trombones and everything else. They'd get on their big bass drum. They probably had John Bay solos like I did. But they were very effective as a group of people of doing that, of gathering crowds, and then they would seek to tell people about Jesus. So they grew, and they thrived for many years. And yet in recent years, they've barely grown at all. In many ways, they plateaued out at best. In many situations, they're actually decreasing. Why? You see, I don't want to be a grand critiquer of other movements. That's not my place. And I don't think it's a good thing as a church and as Christians to just spend all the time looking over at the fences as to what other people are doing. I don't think that's helpful. And yet at the same time as I consider them this week, I did think they are a grand illustration of why contextualization is so important. And necessary. I think they were so effective in their early years because they were brandishing the gospel. They were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't changing it. It was a glorious, glorious gospel. It's still the same gospel that they share today. They do a grand job of gathering around the word of God and sharing the truth of the gospel in all its glories with people. And that is the power of God unto the salvation for all who believe. But... Not only has their message stayed the same, their methodology stayed the same. So in the early 1900s, brass bands were great. Everybody loved it. The problem is, in 2011 in Spalding and Lincolnshire, where I where I grew up, they still go into the local park with a brass band. That ain't cutting it anymore. Young people are walking around thinking, "Are you for real?" If I become a Christian, does that mean I have to play trumpet and wear a uniform? It's not quite digging it anymore. The culture has massively moved on. And so my grandma loves them. But everybody younger than that thinks they're just a charity or they're just used to spend using money to see work go on around the world. They are a great example of a movement and a church where not only has the message stayed the same, but the method has stayed the same. And as a result, that has caused barriers between the gospel and any individual. That wasn't how they started, so they thrived. But it is how they are today. The point I simply want to make from that is this. Contextualization matters. If we want to be in the world to win the world, then contextualization always matters. And that is exactly the point that the Apostle Paul is trying to make here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Our message must always remain the same. The gospel must not be changed. If you study the works of Paul, who is the church that he gets most cross with and angry with righteously? Galatians. Not the Corinthians even though they're screwing up their lives. Not the Thessalonians, even though they're spending all their time on the front porch thinking that the rapture is going to occur any moment. He's not that cross with them. The Galatians are changing the gospel, and he is going for them. He wants them to understand the gospel must not and may never be changed. But that same man, the Apostle Paul, wants us to see as congregations that although the message must remain the same, our methodology must change. Contextualization really does matter. And given the importance then of contextualization, I'm keen just to camp out on that topic this morning and help us see why it is so important as biblically defined from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. So there's three points we're going to look at this morning. Number one, the model of contextualization. Number two, the struggle of contextualization. And then number three, the guards of contextualization. So number one, the model of contextualization. I think so often in church life, the model that maybe we've grown up with, a model that we're used to of outreach, um, is not exactly the model of the Bible. And I know it because I've lived in it. So I've grown up going to church. You know, I don't remember the first day I went to church. I went to church in my mother's womb. You know and I've always been around church. So I was certainly well acquainted with church life. And for the last 11 years, I've been a pastor. And for the first six years of that, uh, my model of mission was not biblical either. I was doing what most other pastors are doing, which is two things. Number one, you build a ghetto. You seek to build a family. You seek to build people around the knowledge of the gospel and the application of the gospel. And we spend time doing life together. And in Christchurch in Wales, I think we had that down to to a T, to be fully honest. The church was growing and it was tight. People did life together. People truly were devoted to one another. They loved one another. They still do. They carried one another's burdens. They rejoiced together. They laughed together. They wept together. They cared together. It was a tight church. The problem becomes, though, that type of church can so easily become a ghetto. So that's all there is. And we closed the doors. And so then our mission was this. We were in the ghetto as a group, and now and again, we, we would go out and sort of little little sortie missions in small groups to give out leaflets. And that's what we called evangelism. And all our leaflets were the same. They had different things on them, but they always said roughly this, please come to our meeting. So we ran out with the leaflets and we put them in people's doors, usually at night because you didn't want to talk to people. So you actually put them through your doors and then you go back and you think, we are a very evangelistic church. I'm sure that people are going to come through any moment. So if you've seen the film Field of Dreams, build it and they will come. That was our philosophy of evangelism. Build a church and I'm sure they'll come through the leaflets. They go, oh, wow, look at this leaflet. I just want to go. The problem is people never came. But that was our model of outreach. Build a ghetto, send people out on little saute missions. And now and again, if we felt really guilty about things, we would do sporadic evangelistic crusades. Here, I think they're called a beach mission. But for us, we called them different things. That's all we did as a church. I'm not against beach mission. But if that's all we think of as mission... We are completely missing it. Mission isn't one week a year. Mission is life. But we thought of it as one week a year. We thought, you know, what? all we can simply do, all we give ourselves to, is now and again when we feel guilty about not doing enough mission, we either go out and give leaflets, or we go into the town and we give out teas and coffees and Kit Kats, and we try and just invite people to things, and that's what we do. And that was easy, because you're always meeting people in town that you would never met. And then you'd run back to work with people that you see every day. They wouldn't even know you're a Christian. But people in the town center, because you don't know them and you don't see them every day, you give them a leaflet that says, please come to our church and it will do you good. That was our model of mission. And I submit to you that is most churches' model of mission. That's it. That is not biblical mission. That is not what this Bible talks about. It doesn't mention leaflets once. It just doesn't talk about it doesn't talk about doing those things. It doesn't talk about going on little sporadic missions for Jesus or just seeing mission as one week of the year. Likewise, it doesn't actually talk about, as a local church, sending out one or two people to international missions and that's the mission of the church. That ain't in the Bible either. I think we've imbibed a Christian subculture so often that is not represented in the Word of God. Biblical mission is very different than that. see, the missional model of the Bible always involves two things. It involves a lifestyle of going, not sporadically, but ongoingly and continuous. This is a lifestyle of people who are consistently going, who are consistently going into their communities, their workplaces and their colleges and living for Jesus. A lifestyle that is not caused to specific moments of their life, but it is a lifestyle that says, I'm for Jesus. I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ, not just one week a year, but 52 weeks a year. I'm always an ambassador for Jesus Christ. When I go out my house and my neighbor says, Hey, how are you doing? I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ right there. It's a lifestyle. And that's what the Bible represents. It builds this picture of a lifestyle of going. And within the context of going, it always talks to us about contextualization. It's what Jesus did, it's what the Apostle Paul did. And when I say contextualization, this is what I mean. It's the process of translating the gospel in word and deed to the many and varied people of the world. It's the process of translating the gospel, getting the gospel into our lives and pumping it into our lives, into our minds and our hearts. So that in word and deed, we're able to translate the gospel to various different cultures and lifestyles and means for the glory of God. That's what contextualization is. And the Bible, when it talks about biblical mission, always has those two things in mind, going and contextualization. And no one modeled that outside of Christ better than the Apostle Paul. So he gives us four illustrations right here in this text of what that looks like. Four things of what it means for him to go into the world to win the world and contextualize in different circumstances. This is what he talks about. Let's look together. Verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Do you get the heart? The heart behind mission? I'm a servant. His heart behind mission is I want to serve people. I, I, I want to serve them. And I've become a servant to whoever God has brought into my life for the glory of God. This is then what he does. Number one, to the Jews... I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. You get that? To the Jew? To my Jewish friends? Oh, I became as a Jew to them. Why? Because I want to win them. See, Paul was a Jew. So what's he on about? Well, what he's on about is this. Jesus Christ, since his death and resurrection, had now birthed a new race, a new temple, a new people, a new family where Jew and Gentile, slave and free man and woman were all part of the same race. And Paul knew that and rejoiced in that for the glory of God. But his unbelieving Jewish friends didn't get that. So what he's saying is, when I'm with them, I'm going to become like a Jew. It's not doing any harm to do the different things they do in their Jewish ways of life. I don't believe that doing them is actually causing me to to make things right with God. But if it helps them, and it helps build a platform for truth to go into their lives, then when I'm with a Jew, I'm going to be like a Jew, so that I might win them. He then goes on, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. The Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, had nullified the distinctly Jewish elements of the Mosaic law. That's what he had done. They had been fulfilled in the death and resurrection and life of Jesus Christ. All the ceremonial law, the Jewish law, had been fulfilled through and in Jesus Christ. And Paul knew it. But nonetheless, he's saying, you know what, to those under the law though, people that don't get that yet, people that haven't seen that, I want to be like one under the law. He puts in brackets there, don't you love it? Though not being myself under the law. He's making it clear, my heart and my brain, I know, I get it. I know I'm not under the law, but in my lifestyle, when I'm with people under the law, I want to be like them. I want to spend time with them. And if this is going to cause a platform for truth to be erected, then I'm going to be behaving like them as well. Not because I am under the law, but because I want to build a platform for truth. Verse 21, To those outside the law... I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. There are indeed people of this generation that are outside the law of God, outside the law of Christ. Paul knows that he is not. He's not outside the law of God. He's not outside the moral commandments. He's not outside of them. He's not outside the laws of Christ, all the person and work and teachings of Jesus Christ, all the instructions of Christ. Paul knows, well, I'm not outside of them. But when he behaves and spends time with people that are outside the law, he wants to be like them. He's not going to sin. He's not going to cross over certain lines. But likewise, he's not going to go in and spend all his time saying, well, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong. He's saying, listen, I want to I I win them. I want to come alongside them. And so where I can be with them and in the world to win the world and spend time with those outside the law, then I will. Verse 22, he says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak." You know, the weak there is talking about the pagans. It's talking about the pagan mind. It's one of the themes that runs through all of the Corinthians. The Corinthians are smart Alex. basically. They think they're pretty impressive. So they want to sit around and discuss Hebrew at length and talk about all the different things of life and say, you know what, we are so smart. We are so clever. And Paul's saying, to be honest with you guys, shut up. Because there are people outside there that don't know any of the Hebrew. They don't know any of the different contexts, but they need Jesus. And so I, as a man, I'm going to be spending time with them. To the weak, I'm going to become weak. I'm not going to spend time with my next door neighbor as an unbeliever talking to her about the Hebrew. That is not going to help her. To her, I'm just going to try and win her. I'm just going to try and come alongside her. I'm going to try and spend time talking about what she would like to talk about so that I can erect a platform for truth through my relationship with her so that then I can share the gospel. Do you see the point? He's basically advocating, incredibly, a chameleon-type approach to mission. That's what he's doing. And People get nervous about that and they think, Whoa, hang on, what does that mean? He's not saying that we have to lose authenticity. He's not saying that we lose integrity. But what he is saying is one size fits all in mission does not work. And it does not. It doesn't. To the weak, we have to be different. To those outside the law, we have to be different. To those under the law, we have to be different. It depends where people are coming from, their backgrounds and their lifestyles and their cultures. Our dissemination of mission, according to Paul, must be different. And yet it's similar in this regard. In each different context, our motive and desire has to be to try and win them. To try and win them. So if we're going to behave in a certain way, if we're going to spend time with them in a certain way, our motive and our desire is that through our behavior, we might erect a platform for truth as we become their friend so that then we can share the gospel with them. But that erecting of a platform for truth may look very different in lots of different circumstances depending upon the person. And in that regard, Paul was an excellent example for us. He was an excellent example of biblical mission. This dual purpose of going, of building a lifestyle that is going beyond the ghetto, that is spending time with the world, that is seeking to win them for the purpose of the gospel. All things to all men, so that by all means I may win some. He's a wonderful example of what that going looks like. But he's also a wonderful example of contextualization. To the weak, I'll be like one who's weak. To those under the law, I'll be like those under the law. To those outside the law, I'll be like those outside the law. To the Jews, sure, I'll become like a Jew. To the Brit, I'll become like a Brit. I'm happy to talk about London. What does it matter? That's what he's saying. We don't have to just build our Christian ghetto lifestyle and then we're just all walking around and whoever we interact with is exactly the same. He's saying, no, it's different. And it has to be different if we're going to win people to the personal work of Jesus Christ. If we truly want to win people to Jesus Christ, I submit to you that our lifestyle evangelism, our mission must be very diverse, very broad, and must involve going. It has to. There is no plan B. So do I want Sovereign Grace Church to be known as, oh, that's the church that do Christianity Explored? Is that it? I've seen churches do that. We were one of them. Christ Church was one of them. We ran Alpha for years. And when everybody said, what do, you, what do you do as evangelism? Well, we give out leaflets and people come to Alpha. Here's the problem. There's many men and women across the world that would never, ever, ever sit down drink a cup of coffee with a group of guys and girls and talk about Jesus within the context of Alpha. Ever. Oh. We didn't have an answer for them. Well, that hopefully we'll build a better church and they might come they're not going to come likewise people that try and build churches in such a way where everything is just personal evangelism everything is every man for himself and it can be as simple as this it can be trying to build a structure where all we do is we invite people into our home to come and read the bible with us is that wrong no it's great but there is a certain type of person that will never ever come into my home and read the bible with me ever they're not coming because that's really really weird and i would have been one of those types of guys that's really odd but for some that's that's it this is the answer no it's not the answer for others it's just brandishing the gospel and going out into the world every man for himself and building clubs and societies that's great but often if that's all we do then these people never actually get the gospel So that ain't going to work either. We're broad and diverse in our contextualization, but we're so contextualized that we look just like them and we're not actually getting to them with the gospel. That isn't going to work. The Apostle Paul exemplified in his life a model for mission that involved going and contextualization, going into the world to win the world and then contextualize, being very different depending on different people from different cultures and lifestyles and backgrounds. Now... I'm aware for some of you, you might be thinking, that sounds really scary. And it can be a struggle. And particularly if you have not been in a church background, maybe some of you have been unbelievers and this is the first church background you've been in, it can seem like, man, this is, this is going to be different. Going beyond the ghetto and being in the world to win the world and all things to all men and being like chameleon-like, that sounds really worrying. So let's look at number two, the struggle of contextualization. See, having looked into this, really for the last five years now, really trying to study and get to grips with local mission and what that looks like, I think so often our struggle with contextualization, our struggle with actually being in the world to win the world, comes down to three specific fears. They're not biblical fears, but they're fears that cause us to rationalize in our own mind why we shouldn't contextualize, why this would be hard, why we shouldn't do this. The first fear is the fear of man. It's that concern of what will people think, and my guess is if you're a Christian and you have a heartbeat, you'll probably have that to some degree because we we all have, and I get that. Last Monday, having just preached to you on the Sunday about the importance of being in the world to win the world, Emma and I went into um, into town. We had to get some souvenirs because we're going to the UK hopefully next week, um, and going to get some souvenirs for all the family and. Emma went in to do the souvenirs, and after the first hour, I felt I couldn't take it anymore. So I came out with Lydia, and we sat on the park bench. And a lady came and sat behind us. And Lydia is singing at the top of her voice, as Lydia does, and I'm on my phone, trying to pretend that I'm not with her. But she's singing, and and I'm kind of on the phone, at which point the lady turns around and says, that's a lovely song. What's that called? At which point Lydia said, God over all. And I'm thinking, oh, please, Jesus. So, so she, oh, I've never, I've never heard of that song before. Let's sing it again. So Lydia is singing at the top of her lungs, God over all, giver of life and health and breath. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what is this woman going to ask? So she finishes singing the song. She said, that's a lovely song. Do you know any others? What's your favorite song? She said, my favorite song is peace. It's me peace when the storm comes and I'm afraid. And she starts singing it. And I'm just like, oh, Lord. What is this woman going to ask? And what is that? It's the fear of man. So instead of saying to this woman, hey, you know, they're they're all church songs, they're all God songs, do you know any of them? I'm thinking, oh Lord, let her go. Please, take her away from this situation. That's the fear of man. It operates in my life, and I think in different degrees it operates in all our lives. And I think it's such an issue for us that I've asked Brendan to actually preach on this topic. So we're going to do a whole week just on the fear of man in a few weeks' time, because it's an important one. And if we're actually going to be a people in the world to win the world, that's something we must work with. Otherwise, we're never going to see anybody come to know the Lord because we never open our mouths because we're too scared of what they might think of us. That ain't going to work. That's the fear of man. But there's two other fears that I want us to look at this morning. Number two, the fear of condoning sinful lifestyles. This is an important one. And I think so many particularly conservative evangelical churches refuse to go into the world to win the world out of concern that even being there might condone the sinful lifestyle of unbelievers. It's an important one and a big one. See, the thinking goes, I think, something like this. The thinking goes, if I engage with unbelievers and I spend time with people that don't know Jesus and I see their unbelieving lifestyles and behaviours, what am I going to do? I've either got to say something so you spend some time with some guys who are homosexual or a couple that are living together or this guy that every time you see him just keeps getting drunk. You get into that situation where you think, oh, I've got to do one or two things. I've either got to say to them that this is wrong and this is not the way Jesus wants to behave or I say nothing. But if I say nothing, my silence will surely condone what they're doing and I want them to realize I'm different. That's the thinking. The fruit of that is this. Out of concern of whether we would say something or don't, we retreat into our ghetto, and we spend time together, and we send ourselves out on little sauté leaflet missions, and then we actually sit in our ghetto and look at the paper and look at different people in the world going, Dear, oh dear, look at the state of the world. All they need is Jesus. Yes. But we say it all from our ghetto. We don't go out. We don't go out to win the world because surely if I got there, I didn't have to say something or my silence would condone it. And that's not right. So I'm going to sit in the ghetto and I'm going to tut. I'm going to become a professional tutter for Jesus. That's not what we're called to do, guys. And yet that is what we can do. That's what so easily we can do. But it all comes, I think, from this motive of what would I say There's a fear of condoning sinful lifestyles that we interact with. Here's the question. And here's the question we must bottom out. Are we or are we not as Christians called to challenge sin and unbiblical lifestyles and unbelievers? Are we? When you interact with unbelievers, is there a call of God on your life to ensure that they understand that the way they're behaving is unbiblical and sinful? I think the common evangelical Christian example is yes, of course there is. I put to you the biblical answer is no. We're not called to do that. And nowhere in the Bible does it ever call us to do that. See the example of Jesus, John 12. He says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You do not see Jesus incarnating and coming to the world and then spending all his time tutting. He doesn't. He addresses the Pharisees because they believe that their behavior is going to earn their salvation. And so he wants to help them realize that is wrong. That is hypocritical and that is wrong. But he spends time with tax collectors and prostitutes and difficult folks and robbers and all the different vilest part of humanity. He doesn't correct them once. Why? Well, he tells us in John 12, because I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world came to win them the apostle paul does exactly the same in 1 corinthians chapter 5 he's talking to the corinthian church about the importance of within a local church ensuring that sexual immorality be not even named among them that within the context of a local church greed and swindling and idolatry and sexual immorality shouldn't shouldn't even have a place in any shape or form in the context of a local church ecclesia people that have been won to jesus christ But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, having indicated that to the church and ensuring that they guard each other in that, he says, but what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you get the point? He said, this is the case within the church because you're Christians. You know, having understood the Bible and grasped the Bible, how you are to live for Jesus Christ. And if we are going to be in the world to win the world, then we must be different as was Christ. But when you go into the world... Who am I to judge them? They're not living for Christ. They've never said they have. So, who am I to spend my time judging them as unbelievers? And so, with unbelievers, is there a time in the midst of sharing the gospel with them that we call them to repentance? Absolutely, there is, without any doubt. So, if somebody says, So, what do I do to be saved? You tell them, You put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you take Him as the Lord of your life, which means no longer just living for yourself and doing what you think is right, but it's coming under the Word of God and allowing the Word of Christ and God to dwell in you and now live for Him. To become a Christian always involves repentance and faith. But prior to that moment, do we have to point out every individual thing in an unbeliever's life? Never. We're not called to do that. The Bible doesn't call us to do that. The Bible calls us to live differently and then spend time with them, contextualizing so that we can be there in their lives when the questions come and when the opportunities to come to share the gospel. But we're not called to spend time with people tutting and letting them know, well, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that ain't right, and that ain't right. They're not Christians, and so we shouldn't be judging them as Christians. We take them where they're at. And we'd be in the world to win the world and come alongside them. That's what Jesus did. And this truth, when it's grasped, I think can alone revolutionize people's thinking or mission. Because no longer do I have to be concerned about spending time with a homosexual couple thinking, what am I going to do? It's be really awkward. Well, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're not going to bring it up. You're not going to spend time doing that. You are going to model something very different for them. And when they ask, you are going to answer with integrity and honesty. But you're not going to go and say, Hi, how are you? Or oh, is this your wife? No, no, it's not my wife. It's my sister. But this is my boyfriend. Oh, that's wrong. No, you just say, really? Nice to meet you. Do you want to come around my house for a meal? That's what missional thinking is. It is not spending our lives simping from the sideline seeking to judge people. And I'm so grateful to God that this was a truth that came alive to me about five years ago. Emma and I had some friends, and still have some friends, called Anna Maria Mark there were a couple we were reaching out to at Christchurch over a number of years. Emma had got to know her from mothers and toddlers. So we'd see her every Friday morning and began getting a relationship with her and a friendship with her. And then our girls started going to the same school. So it was great. It was an ideal opportunity to get to know them more. My evangelistic strategy is simple. Emma gets to know the friends. I tag along and meet the husband. That's that's the way it works in our home. That tends to be what we do. seems to be quite effective for Jesus. So we started to get to know them as a couple. And it was all going well until one day I asked the question, so when did you get married? And they say, we're not. Oh, okay. So they're there with their three kids, and I'm there with my three kids. And you think, right, so not married. Okay. And then she brings up, hey, but does Amy want to stay over the night tonight? And I'm thinking, ooh, in the home with an immoral couple? I'm I, I'm not not sure. I mean, does my silence condone this now? Does my, If I don't say anything, are they going to think that I'm completely fine with that? Or do I say something and make a scene, in which case they're probably going to reject me? What do I do? Well, I, I did nothing. And I did nothing because I knew this scripture. I knew that although this is... Kind of different for me. This is my opportunity to win them. Then the opportunity came, the conversation came of this. We have got some tickets to go away for the weekend. Does your family want to come? <laughs> going away now with a couple that don't know Jesus and are living together and I'm a pastor. What is that? I mean, How does this work? Does, everybody, does this mean that everybody's going to think that surely living together is fine? So, yes. And we went away with them. the weekend and we just had a most wonderful time did the fact that they were living together come up once nope but did jesus come up oh he came up a lot he came up a lot because we were spending time with them and they became our friends and we had a call just two weeks ago over the years we we continued to reach out to anna maria mark She went on Christianity Explored. He was interested, but kind of backing off it. But we just had a good relationship with them. They'd come to church with us at different times, strictly on Reason for God Sundays. But we continued to reach out to them up until when we came here. And then we just prayed for them. We had a call two weeks ago from Anna Marie. They haven't become Christians, but here's what has happened. She said, two weeks ago, we just had this urging to go back to church. So we did. And we loved it. And the most weird thing happened. Mark really loved it as well. So we went back the week after and Mark's mum came because she really wants to start going to church. So now Anna Marie and Mark and his mum have started going to church. And I thought, Lord, thank you. I could have so easily thought, I'm so uncomfortable with a couple that are just living together. What will my kids think? What will people think? You know what? No. But I'll go back into my ghetto and I'll send you a leaflet to come to Christianity Explored. I could have so easily done that. I thank God that He worked on my heart to help me see that spending time with people and keeping our mouth shut on sinful issues is not condoning it. Spending time with people is loving people where they're at. And then by God's grace, it provides numerous opportunities of a platform to be erected to tell them and talk to them about Jesus. Because they see it in your lives and they see you're different. And they see you encouraging them and being grateful for them and loving them, and yet at the same time, clearly living a different life. Thank God that He worked on my heart to help that. And that, my friends, I want you to consider that is missional living. It's spending time with people. I'll never forget the first time we started to reach out, as I said to you last week, through the PNC Disco. And all the awkwardness of that. But I'll never forget the first time we had, about, we had about four different couples in our home. And they are swearing. It is raucous. And I've got my small children around. And I'm just thinking, my goodness. It felt very strange. That's how it feels for them coming to church. It feels really weird. Really weird. So you've got people that don't know Jesus, no Christian background. They walk in, Nillmanhurst Boys High School. The last time they were in a school is when they were 10. So they walk into a school and they're like, well, this is different. And then they've got people on the front row. Jesus! Well, that's pretty weird. And then at the end, everybody wants to talk to them and find out their name. That never happens anywhere else. They go, you don't go to the center and say, hi, what's your name? You just leave me alone, you freak. It just doesn't work like that. They feel very strange coming into our environment. So it would make sense that we would feel strange going into theirs. If our mission does not feel strange, we're probably not doing it. We should be in circumstances where we think, I don't know what I'm going to say. That's kind of weird. That's mission. Do you think Jesus, as the sovereign Holy One of all, was sitting down with a prostitute thinking, my, we got a lot in common. I don't reckon. The barriers that he was overcoming were massive for the world. The barriers that we have to come are minuscule and yet we must overcome. That's a fear we must overcome. That fear of condoning sinful lifestyles is because we misunderstand. We think we have to point everything out and I submit to you, we don't. There's also another fear though, the fear of becoming like them. The fear that the more we spend time with people in the world, we'll become like them and therefore I better back off that because I don't want to become like them. So I think that comes from a really good motive. A really, really good motive. That desire to love Jesus and be like Jesus and live a holy life. That's what we're called to do, right? We're called to live for Jesus and pursue Jesus and becoming more and more like him. That's something we're called to do. And so we can perceive that if I spend time with people in the world all the time, I might not be able to do that. They might lead me astray more than I'll lead them astray. Well, so often that fear once again causes people to run back into the ghetto where they've got all their Christian mates around them so they don't get infected by the world. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be in the world to win the world. So that fear, that concern of people infecting us or affecting us or in some way contaminating our holiness is not one that should cause paralysis. It's one that should cause us to walk wisely in the mission of Jesus Christ. See, if we think that this call to arms is therefore... See, the last thing you want is like teenagers thinking, absolutely brilliant. For the last 18 years of my life, my parents have said I can't go to clubs, but now I'm going to start going every night because Dave says I need to be in the world to win the world. That's not what I'm saying. We need to be wise in where we go. We need to be wise in what we do. We need to be wise in the places we go to and who we go with. But we must never understand that being wise means we do nothing. Being wise means that we walk a considered and careful missional walk. And God, gives, God has given us guardrails on that. So here's the third point. The guards of contextualization. See, being in the world to win the world will put us in very strange and awkward circumstances. You read, many of you, Reformed Reformation, Radical Reformation, and you got in Chapter 1, Mark Driscoll at a gay rodeo. That's kind of different. That's kind of a weird circumstance, a strange circumstance, and somewhere where most Christians haven't been. In fact, if we did a show of hands, I think we'd probably find there's not too many people here that have been to gay rodeos. But that doesn't mean that everybody can just go into any circumstance. Apparently, Chris has. That's awkward. But that doesn't mean... That everybody in every circumstance just can go into different things. The, The Lord gives us guardrails and contextualization that enables us to live a holy life and pursue holiness, but at the same time be in the world to win the world. So there's four things I want you to bear in mind, four guardrails and contextualization, which I hope will help you. Number one, where association is explicitly sinful, we must not get involved. Now, one would assume that is Captain Obvious, but I think it's probably worth saying nonetheless. You know, where association is explicitly sinful, we can't, we can't just get involved with things. On the premise of, yeah, but I'm trying to be in it to win it. Not there, you not. Know? That ain't going to work. You know, that is sinful. The whole idea of being a chameleon for Jesus and understanding mission and contextualization does not mean that we're so chameleon, we're just like them. That isn't salt and light anymore. We need to be with them, but different from them. And so where association by very nature causes us to sin or it's explicitly sinful, we must not get involved. Biblically defined, we are the ecclesia, you know, called out ones. That's what that means. We are called out. We are separate from the world in our behavior, in our lifestyle, in our values. We are called to be different. And so where association is explicitly sinful, we can't take part. Pete Creasley, my friend, a guy that many of you know, he came out earlier this year. When he first became a Christian, he was 19 years old. Every Friday night, he would gather with a group of guys watching dirty films and smoking dope. So when he became a Christian, he carried on. And his pastor came alongside him and said, Listen, you know what? This probably ain't quite going to work. But he just didn't know. He was a new Christian, and he was still getting used to how this kind of functions. But as soon as the pastor explained to him, You know what? Smoking dope and watching dirty films isn't quite going to work for a Christian. He stopped that and he was able to share the gospel with all the guys that he began to gather with. Not in a self-righteous way, but he explained to them, I'm now different and I'm living for something different and Jesus has changed my life. We should not think that in it to win it means we condone everything and become like it. We must be different. So number one, where things are explicitly sinful, we must not get involved. Number two, where association could cause us to sin we must keep away. Where association could cause us to sin, we must keep away. Proverbs 22 verse 3 says, The prudent man sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. That is such a helpful proverb. And it's one, if we are going to be a church in the world to win the world, would probably be worth memorizing. You see, there's so many things in life that in and of themselves, are not explicitly sinful. And yet for each individual, depending on our temptations and tendencies, there'll be some circumstances for each of us that we just can't get involved in. Because by the nature of getting involved, we are going to be sinning. And so for me, as a guy, there would be a lot of films that are not explicitly sinful, and you could watch them, but I can't. Because for me, there are temptations and tendencies when I watch a certain type of thing that causes not a great side of me to come out. And so there's some things that I'd have to be saying to people, you know what, it ain't wrong for you to watch that, but for me, that ain't going to quite cut it. Sorry about that. Secondly, I'm a red-blooded male. I am. I like ladies. But I love my wife, and I love my saviour. And so like Job, I sought to make a covenant with my eyes. But that doesn't mean I want to be at Bondi Beach every second day. Just, thats isn't going to work. So there are certain places that going to a place is without question not explicitly sinful. It's just the beach. But for me, I, I can't. There's certain things that you just think, you know what, because I love my wife, and because I love my saviour, having made a covenant with my eyes and knowing my temptations, I, I, don't even, I can't go there. And I know that's an expression of my weakness, but I can't. There will be things for you. Maybe you struggle with Alcohol. Maybe you can't go to the pub and not get drunk. Well, here's an idea. Being in the world to win the world for you is going to mean never going to the pub. Honestly. If doing those things, because you know what, if, if we get involved with people and our motive is to seek to win them for Jesus, but then they look at us and say, you get drunk just like me. Your testimony has just been blown through the floor. There is no point. So if alcohol is an issue for you, you must, out of integrity before the Lord and out of a joy of pursuing holiness and out of a desire to truly win them, ensure that they understand you can't do that because you're different. And hey, they can go to the pub, but for you, you know, you're know, you just tempted to drink and so this isn't going to work. So do you want to like, hang out at my house or maybe materialism is a challenge for you? And whenever you get involved in certain circumstances, you are just tempted to want to work all the harder to earn all the more money to get the thing that they have. If that's the case, a boating club for Jesus probably isn't going to be the best for you. You know what I'm saying? There's a certain type of situation you think, don't do this because this is going to tempt you and draw out a tendency in your life which won't be helpful. If you are obsessed with the way you look, then I would suggest that joining a gym to be in it to win it is not going to be helpful for you. Because you might be walking through the doors thinking, I'm here to win people for Jesus. But before you know it, all you're actually doing is spending hours and hours seeking to run on a treadmill and do weight so that you can look good. That isn't going to be your in it to win it field. You're going to have to leave that to somebody else. See, contextualization matters. But our pursuit of holiness matters as well. And so where association could cause us to sin, as biblically defined, Proverbs 22, verse 3, we must keep away. We must. Number three, where mission is a reality, our brothers and sisters must always be close. Many of the most missional people I have met, people that I deeply respect, I think completely misunderstand this point. So you start a church and that we're all passionate about giving ourselves to life group because we think this is important. It's important that we're tight as a family. It's important that we're carrying one of those burdens and holding one another accountable and ensuring that we're keep, we, we are our brother's keepers. So we give ourselves to that. But then in a desire to be missional, we miss three life groups in a row because we're reaching out to our friend and the only night he can meet on is a Thursday. So hey, you know, I want to be up beyond the ghetto and they're going to hell and I'm not and the church isn't. So I can't give myself to you. I need to give myself to my unbelieving mate. That ain't right. And that is not right as biblically defined. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. But how do I take care? It's the verse after. But exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you get it? I need to take care that I not be deceived in my life. If I'm going to be in the world to win the world, I must ensure that I am different. The problem with being different is the longer you're immersed in it, the less different you become. So I need to be with my family I need to be with people who can ground me in Christ, who can help me, who can aid me in my walk with Jesus Christ so that I can be in the world to win the world. And knowing the deceitfulness of my heart, I need to ensure that I'm around people weakly that can exhort me as to the deceitfulness of sin and so that encourage me and can guard me as I go. That's the biblical context. So do you realize giving yourself to a local church and giving yourself to a life group is also missional? They're not two different things. We give ourselves to family so that we have the strength and the ability to then take the gospel over beyond the ghetto into a world to win the world. It's all part of it. So never have the idea that, well, I just want to do mission. I don't want to do this. This is mission. This is part of it. This is part of being equipped to go for the glory of God. So where mission is a reality, our brothers and sisters must always be close. And number four, Where mission is a reality, the gospel must always be central. It must always be central. In verse 23 there, Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. What's it all about? It's all about the gospel. His whole aim all the way through that text is, listen, although I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant of all. Why? So that I might win them. I want to win them. I want to go into the world to win the world because I want to win them. I want them to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I want to win them to my Savior. Well, the gospel then is vital for that. We're never going to argue anybody in. We're never going to nice somebody in. The Mormons are nice. That doesn't make people Christians. We're never going to be able to behave in such a way where they go, wow, I just want to be a Christian. It is the gospel, the gospel which changes people's lives. Our model and our example should flavor it for people so that it's attractive, but ultimately it is the gospel and the gospel alone that changes people's lives. It is the gospel which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So the gospel must be central because when we seek to reach people we must be ever present with the understanding that it's the gospel that will affect them. How can I influence them with the gospel? But secondarily the gospel is also our guard. So I think it's so easy to be in the world, to win the world and after a while forget why we're there and start to enjoy it and start to be influenced by it and start to lose ground for it. But when we hold the gospel tight, telling ourselves it daily, immersing ourselves in the gospel, pumping ourselves with it before we even go, we go knowing that not only do I brandish something that is the power of God and salvation, I brandish something that is my God. I'm only going to seek to win them. I'm only going to seek to save them. If I become just like them, there is no message. So the gospel also becomes a guard. And that brings us full circle to where we started. The whole motive behind all what we're doing, the idea that by God's grace, we may truly win some. See, folks, there are people all across our city and all over our lives that need Jesus. They need him. You only have to read the paper to realize it's a cruel world out there. It is a broken down house. And yet we have a message that can change lives. And people need to hear this message. And in order to give them this message, we must contextualize. Contextualizing so that our behavior, whether it be to the Jew or the weak or those under the law or in the law, it may be different so that we can erect a platform for the gospel to pass over as we talk to them. Jesus, friend of sinners. The apostle Paul. Who am I to judge him? I just want to win them. I want to be all things to all men, so that by all means I may win some. Contextualization matters, and so here's my question for you that I want to want you to consider this week and knock around in life groups. What would it need to look like to translate the gospel in word and deed to those that God has sovereignly brought into your life? What would it need to look like? To translate the gospel in word and deed to those that God has sovereignly brought into your life. The people that you go to college with, work with, people that are in your families that don't know the Lord, that ain't an accident. We do believe in God's sovereignty, right? He has sovereignly placed them there. So what is it going to look like to translate the gospel to them? Given the group this size, if we all considered all the different people we're with, the context would be vast. So one leaflet for Jesus probably isn't going to cut it between us. It's going to need to look very different. So what does it look like for you? What will it need to look like for you to translate the gospel in word and deed to those that God has sovereignly brought into your life? Think about it. Pray about it. Discuss it. And by God's grace then would we all grow as we seek to win people for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the excitement in this local church that comes as we discuss mission. Oh Lord, would this be a hallmark of who we are? Would this, would this be a DNA value of this local church? Would we reflect the mission that we see in scriptures? Lord, would you help us to be all things to all people, so that by all means we may win some. Would there be numerous conversations that happen today and at our church family meeting this afternoon and over this week and in our life groups that help to sharpen us as believers, help to equip us as as believers as we seek to take the message to the world. Lord, give us grace for the task that is before us. We want to win people for Jesus. So enable us, equip us, You have sent us out, so in Jesus' name, help us go.